0: Well, I guess I should start by saying Happy New Year. Year. Try it again. Happy New Year. Year. Okay, that's better. Well, it's now two weeks since Christmas is over. Uh, For most of us, life is back to normal. Holidays are over. We're back at work, back in the classroom, back to the routine. And the shopping malls have certainly moved past Christmas already. Uh, The Christmas decorations are down. We're all ready for Chinese New Year. And as we uh, leave Christmas behind, I think uh, it is easy to also leave behind the tremendous claims of Christmas that we have remembered. Let me just remind you a couple of the Christmas carols one last time. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. At Christmas time, we celebrated the arrival of a king. We celebrated the coming of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who came to rule this world in all majesty and power forever and ever. And that's not the kind of message that uh, we can just move on and forget as we head on into a new year. Uh, That is a message that has life-shattering consequences for each and every one of us. Uh, And as we come to this section of Luke's Gospel, it is really challenging us this morning, will we welcome Jesus as the King of Kings in 2019? Well, we've been away from Luke's gospel for a while. In, in chapters 1 to 9, Luke has already left us in no doubt of Jesus' kingship. You might remember the angel's message as Jesus was born. He, the, the baby is Christ the Lord. Uh, through the early chapters, we've seen his, in his teaching his, his claim to kingship. We've seen in his miracles authentication of his kingship. And in chapter 9, verse 20, the the turning point in Luke's gospel, we find recognition of his kingship. As the apostle Peter says of Jesus, you are the Christ of God. You are the promised king who will rule forever. And with that declaration made, you can see the shift in verse 21 as Jesus begins to predict his death. He strictly charged them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And later in that chapter, in verse 51, next slide, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from chapters 9 to 19, Jesus has been on this long journey to Jerusalem. He knows when he reaches there, he is going to die. And now as we reach chapter 19, that journey is about to end. And the expectations are are high. Jesus is accompanied by this this great crowd that has followed him. They're they're waiting for him to establish his kingdom and, and set up his rule. And yet Jesus knows what awaits him. He's already promised it. Just in the previous parable, if you can see, the parable of the ten miners in verse 14. The citizens of the noblemen will hate him, and they will reject his rule. And so as Jesus enters into Jerusalem as king, he wants it to be absolutely clear what kind of king he's going to be. Not the king that they expect, Not the king that they really want. Not the king who's going to wage war and overthrow the Roman overlords. But definitely the king that we need. The king that will save. The king that will humble himself to death. The king that is worthy of our praise in 2019. Well, there's just two points this this morning. They're two different responses to Jesus. The first one is the acknowledgement of Jesus' rule brings peace. The acknowledgement of Jesus' rule brings peace. Look with me at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent the two of his disciples. Now, the Mount of Olives uh, is a significant place. It's right on the edge of Jerusalem. And 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had promised that on the day that God came to, to judge his enemies and to save his people, he would come and he would stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, you can see the prophecy on Zechariah 14 On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And so as Jesus steps onto the Mount of Olives, we're meant to realize the king has arrived. And Jesus has this deliberate plan to announce his arrival. It's a little strange, but you see it there in verse 29. Uh, He says he sends his two disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where you are entering. You'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. Uh, uh, And all goes ahead as, as Jesus had planned. Now we need to remember here, Jesus is not like stealing an animal or something like that. Uh, In those days, if a a royal figure wanted to go somewhere, they could just commandeer someone's transport. That was perfectly legal. (laughs) And that's who Jesus thinks he is, isn't it? He calls himself the Lord, and everything goes according to plan. Verse 32, those who were sent away uh, went and found it, as it had been told them as they were untying the colt. Its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And off they go, and they bring it to Jesus. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus has total knowledge of the situation. He knows where the colt is going to be. He knows it's going to be tied up. He knows that no one's ever ridden it before. He knows how to get it from the owner. And there's really only two options here. Either Jesus has supernatural knowledge of everything, or he's carefully planned this in advance. Uh, it could be either, but I suspect it's the latter. Uh, perhaps when Jesus says, the Lord has need of it, that's his uh, olden time password. <laughs> but this uh, whole sequence of events is meant to underline Jesus' power and, and Jesus' authority, his, his total rule, his total control. It's is striking, isn't it, the way he describes himself? The Lord has need of it. The the, the Lord, that's usually referring to God himself in the Old Testament, but I think it's quite clear here. Jesus sees himself as the Lord. He is God who's come to save and rule his people. Uh, And now he intends to show it with this this strange act of riding on a donkey. To understand this, we need to go back. Uh, God had promised... uh, long before that one of David's descendants, King David's descendants, would sit on the throne forever. But for 500 years, Israel had no king. God's judgment had fallen upon them. Israel had been taken into exile in Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. Now, later under the Persians, they returned. They they rebuilt the temple, but there was still no king. The Greeks conquered the Persians. The Romans conquered the Greeks, And for 500 years, Israel was still waiting for her king to come and establish God's kingdom. And the prophet Zechariah had promised 500 years earlier that when that king came, he would enter riding on a donkey. Do you remember that prophecy we read in the Old Testament? Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, it's significant that he's riding on a donkey here. Normally, kings ride on war horses, right? And they have all their, their, their troops tailing behind. But not Jesus. Because Jesus is the king of peace. He hasn't come to fight He's come to save. He hasn't come to overthrow the Roman superpower. He's come to die for sinful humanity. He is God's humble king who has come to bring peace. We see that in the next verse of this prophecy. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, the mission of this king was to bring peace to the world. His rule would be global and universal. He would make wars cease. He would end Israel's oppression. And now Jesus tells us the way he will do it is not by fighting, but by dying in Jerusalem. King Jesus rides on a donkey because he doesn't come to win. He comes to die. Well, why must he die? He, he, he comes to, to, to suffer and be rejected. He comes to be, to be killed in our place. He comes to take the, the sins that, uh, that we have committed onto himself to take the punishment in our place. He comes to bring peace with God. He may not be the king that we, we expect, but he's definitely the king that we need. I just want you to just pause and just consider for a moment how different Jesus is to every other ruler of this world. At the moment, our world is full of uh, rulers like uh, Donald Trump, uh, Vladimir Putin, and more people who cling to power, crush their enemies, boast in their strength, make wars if they can. But Jesus comes in humility Jesus comes to bring peace to a broken world. And there's no army, and there's no limousines, and there's no force. And as Jesus comes as this humble, gracious king, the crowd is keen to proclaim his kingship. Look what they do uh, in verse uh, 35. They brought... Uh, the cult to Jesus, throw their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it and he rode along and they spread their cloaks on the road. Now whenever important visitors uh, come, that's when you re- roll out the red carpet. You might remember that uh, a couple of years ago we had uh, Prince Charles visit. Well we didn't need to get a new red carpet because Queen Elizabeth had come earlier. That's why there's a red carpet in the middle of the cathedral over there red carpet is for important visitors. Well, there was no red carpet as Jesus was walking into Jerusalem, so they threw down their clothes on the road. Instead, they're rolling out the red carpet, saying, Jesus, you are king. And the reason they do that is because it was done before in the Old Testament when King Jehu became king and ascended to the throne. This is what they did. In haste, every man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed Je- Jehu is king. And so they lay down their garments to say, he is my king. And having acknowledged Jesus is king, they break out in this, this joyful praise. Look at verse 37. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Their, their, their praises bring this gospel this whole gospel to a climax as we cast our minds back and we remember everything that has happened so far, how he's healed the sick and calmed the storm and driven out demons and fed the hungry with loaves of bread and even raised. Dead people back to life. All these incredible displays of his power and authority and and this vast crowd who comes with Jesus recalls all these mighty works. And they cry out in praise. They say in verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's a quotation from Psalm 118 Psalm 118 was one of six praise psalms used by the Israelites as uh, they went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this one, Psalm 118, was the was the final psalm that they used. It was it was what they would say as they walked into Jerusalem itself. It was a personal song of praise from the king who would return to Jerusalem victorious over his enemies, And as he came back into the city, the gates of Jerusalem would open and he would be welcomed by the praises of the people with these words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is how Jesus should be welcomed. As this long-awaited king comes to claim his rightful place as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then they say, In verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's a slightly funny phrase, that, isn't it? Peace in heaven. But we're to notice that it it reminds us of something that has come earlier in Luke's gospel. Do you remember the message of the angels back in chapter 2? Remember the, the angel appears to the shepherds and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those With whom he pleased. Now they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So at the beginning of the gospel, the angels in heaven declare peace on earth, and now the people on earth declare peace in heaven, and both the angels and the people join together, singing, Glory to God in the highest. The joy of heaven is now met with the joy of earth, because God's king has come to bring peace to his people. Because the reality is that the world that we live in is not one of peace. We live in a world where every person, universally, has failed to give God glory in the highest. We fail to give God his due. We rebel against his rule, and we we live in this, this broken and And wretched world, full of division and hurt. But as King Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he comes to bring peace with God. How will he do that? Well, that Psalm 118 continues. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And so as the victorious king rode into Jerusalem, receiving the praises of his people, he was to ride into the temple. And there the Passover sacrifice was to be made. And so Jesus will as well. He rides into Jerusalem, ready to be arrested And bound, tied up, placed on the altar of the cross to become the perfect sacrifice to deal with the sins of the whole world. There on that cross, Jesus will be enthroned. Even as he is enthroned as king, he will be reconciling the world to himself. As he dies on the cross, he'll be crowned with a crown of thorns. They'll mock him and hail him, saying, King of the Jews. They'll spit on him. They'll crucify him and put a charge above his head that says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And the priests will mock him. He saved others. He couldn't save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And Jesus is the King. Because he hadn't come in glory. He'd come to save. At the cross... He would bring peace to the world as he hung there in our place and bore our sins and took our judgment. The king would make peace with God. Of course, three days later, the stone would be rolled away, the tomb would be empty, Jesus would rise. He would be ascended to heaven and risen again as the king of kings. The Lord of lords, his his worship and praise will go out to all the ends of the earth. But on this day, this crowd gathers around as God's humble king comes to bring peace. Well, that's the first response, but not everyone has that response. We're at point two, the rejection of Jesus' rule brings tragic Judgment. We see the response of the Pharisees in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to, to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're, they're offended that Jesus is claiming these praises to be king. They want it silenced. It's a fulfillment of verse 14, of these citizens who, who hate the nobleman and don't want him to be ruler. And we see these religious leaders now hardened in their rebellion after 19 chapters of the gospel, despite all the mighty works they have seen, despite all of Jesus' teachings, despite all the prophecies he has fulfilled, even before their eyes as he rides in on this donkey. But there is nothing that they can do to stop Jesus getting the praise he deserves. Look at verse 40, Jesus replies to them. I tell you, if these these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And here is the irony. And here is the tragedy of the situation. Even a dead creation would acknowledge the rule of Jesus. But the leaders of God's own people would put him on a cross. Well, look how Jesus responds to their tragic rebellion in verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The the term for weeping here is a strong word. It it refers to that kind of inconsolable weeping. It's the kind of weeping a parent would make when their, their child makes an awful mistake. Jesus, as he sees their stubborn rebellion, he weeps with tears in his eyes. The city, Jerusalem, its name means peace. Salam, peace. But it's a city that rejects the peace that Jesus brings. It's a city that rejects the reconciliation that God offers. It's a city that kills the king of peace, when he comes to save. And again, you can feel the emotion of Jesus. It's not the first time. In chapter 13, he says something similar. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus comes in the name of the Lord to be crowned as king, instead they will kill him. As he comes to receive their cries of praise, instead he receives their cries of mockery. As he comes to bring his peace and reconciliation. Instead, he hears their cries, crucify him, crucify him, as they nail him to the cross. And how Jesus weeps. If only they would accept him. They could enjoy the fullness of God's blessings. They could be gathered into God's kingdom. But they will not. And so with tears in his eyes, Jesus pronounces the judgment that is coming upon them. You can see in verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time." of your visitation. And Jesus is saying what happened in the exile will happen again. This is what God prophesied at the exile. I will encamp against you all around. I will besiege you with towers. I will rage seize works against you. When the exile came with the Babylonians, the children were dashed on the rocks. And the city was leveled. And it will happen again. Not one stone on another, Defeat will be total. The destruction will be devastating. And it was all fulfilled on AD 70 when the emperor Titus besieged the city and burned the temple to the ground and sacked the city and killed 1.1 million people, about half of the population, Uh, Here's what the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about that day. Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any had there remained any other work to be done, Titus uh, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and the temple. No wonder, no amount of tears would be enough to finish mourning for the horrible fate of Jerusalem. And Jesus ends with the tragic reason. Verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. In the Old Testament, God's visitation was the time when he came to his people in Egypt, when he saved them. And destroyed their enemies. And in Luke chapter 1, we were told that God visited his people again in the the ultimate way as he took on human flesh and entered into our world. Zechariah praises God in Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, from of old. He's talking about the baby Jesus and he's saying Jesus has come. He is God in human flesh. He's come to save. He's come to rule. That's the beginning of the story. But the tragedy at the end of the story is that the king who comes to save is rejected by his people. They did not know the time of his visitation. We see here there is such thing as a guilty ignorance. It's a kind of ignorance where, despite all of the evidence, you choose to ignore it. You choose to be blind and live on in stubborn rebellion. I mean, what what more could have been done by God to show Israel that Jesus was the Savior. He has a miraculous birth to a virgin. There was a voice that spoke from heaven at his baptism. He taught like no one else has ever taught in this world. He showed displays of power over creation, over sickness, over evil, or even over death. He showed the character of God in the most magnificent way. His love, his compassion, his justice, his mercy. He fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy from the Old Testament. Even here as he rides in on this donkey, and they lay their cloaks in front of him. And despite all of this, Israel closes their eyes, puts him on the cross. They refuse to see and they live with the consequences and we see Jesus' attitude to those who reject him. He is filled with tears. Somewhat somber way to start the year, isn't it? I think we can easily become softened to the fact of God's judgment. And forget that if people continue in rebellion against Jesus, that there is eternal judgment to come. It ought to move us to tears when we see people around us persist in stubbornly rejecting Jesus despite all the evidence to the contrary. And I think maybe sadly it's because our hearts are no longer fixed on on eternity and on the coming kingdom of God but we're distracted by the things of the present. New Year begins in you know, the contracts and promotions and bonuses and exams and relationships and moving house and getting to the movies. We forget what really matters, that if people reject Jesus, it will cost them everything. They reject him to their own destruction. So here's a solemn warning for us then as we begin the new year. Will we welcome Jesus as king in 2019? We've got two options. We can rejoice in his rule. We can lay down the cloaks of our lives under his feet. We can join with these crowds in following the king and announcing his salvation to the world with great shouts of joy. We can say to Jesus in 2019, be my king. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to bring you praise for all the mighty works you've done in my life at the cross and in the resurrection and in your ascension to heaven and giving me your spirit and sustaining me each day. You are my king. I'm going to live for you in 2019. Either we will acknowledge Jesus as king and we will enjoy the peace with God that he offers or we share in the destruction of which Jerusalem is just a picture. Jerusalem's judgment was harsh, but it was just a tiny picture of the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where Jesus says the worm does not die, the fire does not quench. We've not yet turned to Jesus as Saviour and King. or Jesus says to us this morning, Lay down your life. Follow me. Because when he comes a second time in glory, he will not come in meekness, riding on a donkey. He will come on a great white horse with all the angels of heaven in his train and bring judgment on all who have opposed him. Will we live for Jesus as king. In 2019, or will we reject him? Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning of the meekness and the majesty of King Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this reminder that he came in absolute power and authority as your king, come to establish your kingdom. And we thank you that he came uh, to save, to bring peace with God. We thank you that he came to die to rescue sinners. And yet, Lord, we also thank you for this warning that there is a cost of rejecting Jesus And as we look to this year, we pray that you would help us to share Jesus' tears for the lost and join in proclaiming his salvation to the world. And Lord, we pray for those among us this this morning who have yet to bow the knee to Jesus. Lord, please bring them to trust in him. Our friends and family who do not yet know him, give us tears in our eyes until they come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Rescue them, we pray. And Lord, in our decisions and our actions and our priorities this year, may we bring praise and glory to our King who has died to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.